from PRX. Stew. Stew. D. D. E. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Well, don't be sniffy about I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show... We can start a dialogue. Yeah. Well, they were listening to a lot of different records. And I wanted him to be who I wanted him to be. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. Our subject today is music, specifically popular music of the last 25 years or so. Later, we'll be hearing about music that seemed timely when it came out and is now practically classic by Tupac Shakur. We'll also have some guys in to play new music that is timely right now, the band Algiers. But first, hard to believe, but the Radiohead album OK Computer just turned 20. 20 years ago, in 1997, things in the world were actually going pretty great. Peace and prosperity, democracy and progress. But those breakthrough Radiohead songs about weird technology and crazed consumerism and government corruption... The album's whole dystopian vision of the future, now that we're in that future, seemed pretty eerily accurate. The way the album mixed guitar rock and experimental electronica and smart lyrics were an epiphany for a lot of people, so ambitious, and put OK Computer on pretty much every critic's list for best album of the year, then best albums of the decade, and now, certainly, best albums of all time. So how did it come to be? What inspired Radiohead and its leader, Tom York, to move beyond the straight-ahead rock of their first couple of albums? Well, I think it's the one where the band found themselves in many ways. This is the one where they took more chances and they could really define the radio head sound. That's Colleen Cosmo Murphy. She is an American radio and live DJ who has lived in London since 1999. And she is the creator of something called Classic Album Sundays, where a crowd of people gather to listen to one album together all the way through and then learn and talk about it. So, Colleen, more or less like you do on Classic Album Sundays, but abbreviated, we're focusing on two songs from OK Computer. For each one, we will start by hearing some of the music that inspired Radiohead, and then listen to music that came afterward that seems to be inspired by OK Computer tracks. Basically, we're going to build a little musical family tree. Yeah. Well, they were listening to a lot of different uh, records. They were listening to Johnny Cash, uh, Live at Folsom Prison. Got up next morning and I grabbed that gun. Took the shot of cocaine and away I run. They were listening to Ennio Morricone, the great score uh, writer, soundtrack writer. Uh, and they were listening to Miles Davis' Bitches Brew a lot. It's 
kind of influenced a great deal of the entire album. It specifically really heavily influenced the song Subterranean Homesick Alien, but I hear it also in Airbag. You have that kind of sense of freedom, the intertwining melodic lines. There's a sense of space. You know, Miles Davis always spoke about the space between the notes. And it's very euphoric. I mean, Airbag is one of the songs on OK Computer. Well, that it's not depressing. (laughs) And it's a very euphoric song. And there's a whole sense of freedom with it. It was about surviving a car crash and the sense of being alive. Um, but it was also inspired by DJ Shadow. Just your favorite DJ Savior. Right, DJ Shadow. Let's listen to a little bit of Introducing, which was his debut album. <laughs> And there are lots of sampled bits of voice on that uh, album and that song as well. So you you think they were influenced by this album? Yeah. Phil Selway was listening to it. He's the drummer for Radiohead, and he was listening to the album. The sense of euphoria, just like Miles Davis and Airbag by Radiohead. I mean, there's that influence with the drums. So now shifting from songs that influenced Radiohead as they were making Airbag to a song that was subsequently influenced by Airbag. This is And the World Laughs With You by Flying Lotus. Flying Lotus, so he was the, well, he is the grandnephew of Alice Coltrane, so there's obviously already a sense of improvisational jazz and, and space and electronic experimentation again, very textured, uh, the kind of textures that Radiohead Airbag has. But also, he was a fan of Radiohead and, in fact, recorded with Tom York on that song. Now, now, Radiohead, you, one can get into arguments about Radiohead. You know, it's not everybody's cup of tea. Absolutely. And, and of the critiques and objections that people tend to make about them, um, which do you sort of go, yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. Some people say that Tom York is a little bit too serious and whiny. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, the but words I had written down here for myself moments. were pretentious and morose. But yeah, same deal. <laughs> But, you know, I think they're aware of that as well. And like Paranoid Android, the song was actually supposed to be quite funny. (laughs) 
So Paranoid Android is the second OK Computer song we're going to talk about in terms of what songs influenced it and what songs it influenced. But it also borrowed from a novel. Yeah, exactly. At first, you know, it was inspired by Marvin, the Paranoid Android from Douglas Adams, The Hitchhiker's Guide to Galaxy. Right, 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 right. Hey, Marvin. I think you ought to know I'm feeling very depressed. Uh, but he kind of chose the title as a joke because everyone was saying that, you know, York, he, he was so depressed. <laughs> and um, they were listening to the Beatles album, the Beatles, or otherwise known as the White Album, while they were recording OK Computer. It was another thing they had on the turntable. I assume it was a turntable and not a CD player. Oh, yeah. Happiness is a Warm Gun was called together for a few, a few different songs. It was like put together by three different sections. Mother Superior jumped the gun. Mother Superior jumped the gun. And so that's what they were kind of inspired by was the actual structure of the song. And Paranoid Android, the band combined segments from three different songs written by three different band members. So uh, now jumping forward in time to songs that have apparently been influenced by that song, um, uh, you say uh, there's a decade later comes a Grizzly Bear song, uh, On a Neck on a Spit. Yes. Which this is. Again, it's more sonically, uh, there's very distinct sections in that song. I can hear that. So if something as groundbreaking and original as OK Computer were to appear today, which would be great. Would would any of us, do you think, be able to recognize it as, whoa, that's amazing? You know, only time will be able to tell. And I think people are always are informed by the past, you know, whether it's the early rock and rollers over here in the UK being informed by the skiffle movement, being informed by the trad jazz movement, being informed by the blues movement. And if she gets unrooted, thanks she don't it's always building upon the past anyways. And it is kind of hard to tell what are the game changers while they're happening. It's usually in retrospect that we can see it clearly. Colleen Murphy, this has been uh, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. There's a lot more on our website from Colleen about musicians who influenced and were influenced by OK Computer. 
Check it out at studio360.org. Coming up, Tupac Shakur saw himself as a man battling the man. What they think is that I represent lawlessness and the outlaw mentality, and I represent that thug mentality from the street. Same. How everybody mythologized Tupac, even Tupac himself. That's next in Studio 360 from PRI and WMYC. Studio 360, I'm Kurt Anderson. Each week in our program, of course, we choose a theme and then bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Whoops, wrong public radio show, I'm sorry. But we actually do have a theme this week, ambitious and groundbreaking pop music of a certain vintage and ambitious and groundbreaking pop music from right now. How are you here right now? What are you doing here? Look at you all, Hollywood. I gotta get like... Oh, you're Hollywood. You got to drop another album, do another movie. No, I roll, you know, coming up. Yeah, you a big shot now. That's Demetrius Ship Jr. as Tupac Shakur and Cat Graham as his real-life friend Jada Pinkett in the new biopic All Eyes on Me, a depiction of that friendship, by the way, which Jada Pinkett Smith has just said is wrong and, quote, deeply hurtful. Anyhow, the movie tells the story of Tupac's life from childhood to his murder at age 25 in 1996. Tupac's family was active in the Black Panther movement, including his mother and uncle. He grew up poor and then suddenly became a best-selling rap star just as rap became commercially big time. And after a prison term, was murdered in Las Vegas under circumstances that remain murky. But it isn't just how and why Tupac died that are a mystery. Who he was in life is an even more complicated mystery. Our Studio 360 producer, Daniel Guimet, has the story, which contains bits that might not be suitable for very young listeners. I believe it was his 21st birthday, and we were all coming back from San Francisco in a limousine. Danielle Smith was riding in that limo with her friend Tupac, who had only recently gone from obscurity to stardom. There were two girls that uh, got into the limousine with us, and they were white. And at a certain point on the bridge, they just realized they were going to Oakland, which I guess Oakland has the reputation for being somewhat rough and wild, and they went into a mild panic. And Tupac let them have it. Tupac started yelling at the two women. Let's just say he basically called them out on their privilege with a lot of profanity. I thought they were going to just want to get out of the limousine and stand on a corner and wait on a cab. I don't know. But the power of Tupac as a rising star at that time was such that he was immediately forgiven for saying some of the most heinous things. And they stayed with him and spent the night. It was a lesson for me in superstardom. It was a big lesson for me. Ever since you was a feet, we down by my knee with a weak, we've been Gucci cool off who 
In that moment, Danielle was suddenly seeing her friend through the eyes of other people. People who admired him for his music or his fame or who they wanted him to be. There wasn't just the Tupac she knew anymore. There were now new versions of him that other people were starting to make up. Um, and it's like the hook goes, something we all adore. It's the one thing worth dying for. Nothing but pain, stuck in this game, searching for fortune and fame. It's, it's, it's so basic that we all want to be famous and noticed and watched, and we all want money and riches, and we all, we all want the finest out of life. Danielle first met Tupac way before he had all that. Before he could afford a limo, and before she went on to become the editor of major publications like Vibe magazine. This was in 1990, when he was just 19 and she was 22. What I remember most about him at that time is that he never had any money at all. I remember him not having very stylish clothes. I remember him trying to put money together to go to the barber and honestly cooking a lot of food for him uh, back in those times. Really? Mm-hmm. Tupac was then a roadie for the group Digital Underground, and Danielle was dating the group's tour manager. It was through him that she became close with Tupac. You, you could be jumping fences with this fool. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> it was a different time. Like, like what, sneaking in the pools or what? Yeah, man, like just going in the back doors and stuff and just having the best time doing it. Eventually, someone in Digital Underground noticed that their roadie could do more than set up the stage. Tupac, go ahead and rock this. Now I clown around when I hang around with the underground. Girls used to frown, say I'm down when I come around. Gas me, and when they pass me, they used to diss me. Harass me, but now they ask me if they can kiss me. Things now start happening quickly. In 1991, Tupac is cast in a movie called Juice to play a murderous teenager named Roland Bishop. We run from the cops. We run from security guards. Like I'm on the goddamn track team. I'm serious. Tupac also started recording as a solo artist. And what he rapped about was really different from the stuff he wrote for his old group. He was writing songs about things like his friends in prison and police harassment and gender politics. He had a strong desire to tell stories about what was going on in the poorest neighborhoods of the different cities that he'd lived in. I know they like to beat you down a lot when you come around the block, brothers clown a lot. I listened to your album, mm-hmm. read all the press on you, and I thought, this is an angry young man. <laughs> I'm, I'm a human being, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And I go through smiles, tears, laughter, all that. You know, I'm a Gemini too, which makes it even that much more complicated, so I can flip any second. But you, relatively, if I'm happy, everybody's happy. I remember being at my grandma's house. My grandma had cable at the time. And I remember being on her bed, watching the I Get Around video, and just wishing that guy was chasing me around the pool. Or, you know, there's this part where he's on a tennis court and he's, like, hugging on this girl. And- Shireen Marisol Maraji co-hosts the podcast Code Switch. And the video that made her love Tupac is a classic rap video, by which I mean there's a mansion and women in bikinis. It's not the socially conscious side of Tupac. I was like, oh, I love that guy. Like, for me, the goofy, uh, fun-loving, charming Tupac, and I know that this is 
contradictory because, like, in I Get Around, he calls women hoes, like, a million times. <laughs> That's not funny. But for me, the high school me, there was something relatable about him. He was goofy and fun-loving. He had a million-dollar smile. He was super charming. Shakur, recently arrested in Atlanta following the shooting of two off-duty policemen, was arrested and jailed in New York City early Friday morning. Over the course of 1993, Tupac was accused of trying to hit somebody with a baseball bat for shooting at two off-duty cops during a traffic altercation, and then in November of that year, of sexual assault. According to police, the rapper met a woman on Thursday night and took her back to his hotel room. There, police charge, he allegedly called in three friends who tied the woman up and then assaulted her sexually. I was asked to go down and cover the trial, and I said, I'm recusing myself because I don't believe that it's, I do not believe that it's true. The specific allegation was that he forced the woman to have sex with his friends, which he denied. I don't know that it's not true. I don't know that it is true. I'm talking about what I believe, and there's a difference. But I don't know if he was the person that I knew in that moment. No matter what happens, innocent or guilty, my life is ruined. All that you want to hear is that he's guilty, he's in jail, the reign of terror is over, the outlaw is gone. That's what they want to do. So it's, I'm, I'm starting to think I don't know which story to read. I don't know what this is. And he'd be, you know, outside the courthouse, you know, opining on his meaning and how he was being wronged. And, you know, this is just the government trying to bring him down and... It was, I mean, it definitely felt epic as you were going through it. That's the journalist and critic who simply goes by Torre. He covered Tupac's trial for the Village Voice. And the way he saw it, Tupac was presenting himself as a kind of martyr. Why are they doing this to you? What they think is that I represent lawlessness and the outlaw mentality, and I represent that thug mentality from the street. So they feel like if they can punish me, then it'll punish people who are not as brave as I am, who don't speak out against things like me, who not scared to walk through the streets with no bodyguards. I reached out to the woman who accused Tupac of assault. She didn't respond to any of my calls or messages or letters, but I did get a hold of some of the transcripts from the trial, and this is a bit of her victim impact statement. Since the night of November 18, 1993, I have lost sleep, I have had nightmares, and I live in constant fear. I am still trying to regain control over my life. My entire value structure has been turned inside out. This man who I admired, of someone who has been able to make something of his life, and whose songs talk about keep your head up addressed to black women, is obviously not what he appeared to be. I was starstruck and in awe of this celebrity, and he took advantage of his stardom and used it to abuse me and betray me. He finished his fun and can continue on with his life. One thing I want to ask you is what stood out to you uh, about the victim? Like, do you remember her in any way, or do you remember what, what stood out to you about her? I mean, she is definitely lost to me, and I think that Part of that comes from my youth. Um, At the time I was covering it, I was focused on Pac. I mean, I didn't really give sufficient attention to her. I laid all my spotlight on him. Yeah, it bothers me that her history, her story has kind of been erased from all this. Shireen told me she didn't pay much attention to the trial at the time. I really loved his music as a fan, and I wanted him to be who I wanted him to be. 
Just two days before the jury's decision, three armed men entered a recording studio where Tupac was. They ordered them to the floor. Uh, Tupac resisted. He was shot numerous times, at least twice in the head, once in the left arm, once in the thigh, once in the groin area. Just to be clear, Tupac survives this. And 36 hours later, he's convicted on one of the charges, first-degree sexual assault. This is for touching his accuser without consent. Tupac was then sentenced up to four and a half years in prison. I just, I felt terrible. He was such a defiant individual. Defiant about bullshit like past assault. So to imagine someone like that having to deal with that type of authority on a 24-hour-a-day basis really was enough to give me nightmares. But I remember Tupac sitting there in a white T-shirt and you know, he's smoking cigarettes because he's very nervous. Journalist Kevin Powell was the first to interview Tupac at Rikers, and he noticed right away how shaken up Tupac was. And he kept saying a phrase that we had to actually edit out of the interview because he kept saying it over and over again between sentences, woo-dee-woo, woo-dee-woo, woo-dee-woo. That's the way he talked. Actually going to prison made him seem tougher and stronger and bigger and in the sort of backward way that a lot of us look at it makes him, you know, a real man and authentic. Um, and at the same time, you know, a, a victim because, you know, the man has got him and he's going to prison. You know, uh, in, in certain communities, there's also a, a, a thirst, a hunger for heroes and someone who is taken down by the system by something that they feel has been hurting them or oppressing them. That person becomes a hero. Tupac appealed his conviction and, pending that appeal, was able to get out on bail in October of 1995. Suge Knight, who was the head of Death Row Records, posted the bond in exchange for Tupac signing to his L.A.-based label. So that propels him into this sort of last era of, like, him with Suge and Snoop and Dre and being on Death Row and being on the biggest, baddest gang in all of hip-hop. I ain't got no motherfucker. So I fucked your bitch, you fat motherfucker. Hit him up was huge. Hit him up was the moment where I was like, who the fuck does he think he is? First of all, fuck your bitch in the click you claim. Westside, when we ride, come equipped with game. You claim to be a player, but I fucked your wife. We bust on bad boys, niggas fuck for life. Charlemagne the God, who co-hosts the Breakfast Club radio show, was a teenager when the song Hit Him Up came out. Unsurprisingly, this song made already existing tensions between East and West Coast rappers a lot worse. The song attacks Biggie and Puff Daddy and basically all of East Coast rap. Like, it sounded like the craziest shit I ever heard in my life. That's why I fucked your bitch, you fat motherfucker. You know what? That was the moment. That was the moment when I absolutely, positively started paying attention to Pac and was really on some, like, I was really thinking, like, yo, this dude is either really crazy or really does not give a fuck. You know, see, grab your blocks when you see Tupac. Call the cops when you see Tupac. Uh, who shot me but your pumps didn't finish. Now you're about to feel the wrath of a menace. Nigga, I hit him up. And I want to be in the future known to somebody talking about me like, you know, look, remember when he was real bad? Remember when Tupac was real bad? You know what I mean? They do that about a lot of actors now. Like John Travolta, I read stories, and it's like, remember you were wild? And all these other people, and now they like their sweethearts. We all should get that chance. I just want my chance. Y'all rolling? At this time, the 
wounds are life threatening but serious, not, not in, in critical condition at this time. And the uh, person, as you are already aware, who was the passenger in this vehicle is a known uh, rap performer by the name of Tupac Shakir. The driver, we uh, haven't released his name yet. Both I was at my homeboy Jarrell Garnett's house. God bless the dead. Jarrell got shot and killed too, but yeah, it was, it was Friday night. It was Friday the 13th. And damn, I remember that. It was Friday the 13th. Gangster rap singer Tupac Shakur died tonight in a Las Vegas hospital. The controversial MTV award winner who sold millions of records was on life support for the last six days after he was shot up in a drive-by ambush. And I just remember like, like, damn, like I had to sit down for a moment. Like when you got a rapper at that height of the game, like he was that big, that larger than life and he just passed away. That was like, like, wow. Like I didn't know that could happen. I definitely remember not being surprised. Again, Shireen Madasal Maraji. For me, the myth started after his death. I think that he was a very real, relatable, flawed human. And after he died, he became this bigger-than-life person. Like, I, I, me personally, I remember people liking Pac, but I don't remember Pac being on nobody's top ten list until after he died. It's like that's when you become immortal. Like, people can remember hip-hop before Pac's death, and they remember hip-hop after Pac's death. Like, he's kind of like the Jesus of hip-hop, so to speak. In every album, if you go backwards and you listen to the other albums I've put out, it was a prophecy. And all I'm talking about is going to jail and getting shot. So it was a prophecy. I mean, I don't have to say I'm keeping it real. You can listen to the music and go, whoa, he said that. If I die tonight, he said that. If I die tonight. If I die tonight. From age 19 to his death at 25, Danielle Smith watched her friend Tupac come to represent a lot of things. A year after he died, Danielle herself wrote a big what does Tupac mean kind of essay, saying he made thuggery as resistance appealing, urged us to be loud and wild and reckless. He was not trying to rise above the way things are. But 20 years later, Danielle is no longer interested in talking about what her friend means. And if, if there's anything I can say, too, is that he was a real human being as is made super clear by the fact that he was shot down the street and killed. He is not, to me, a superstar that was killed at the height of his fame. He is a person that I knew who was murdered. When was the last time you saw him? Um, he was in a car going down 6th Avenue in New York City. It was right near Radio City. No one in New York City calls me Danny, actually. <laughs> Everyone calls me Danielle because that is my professional name. But everyone in California calls me Danny. And I was standing there, and I heard somebody say, Yo, Danny, going down the street. And he was hanging out the window of a car. And he yelled my name out. And it was that was honestly the last time that I saw him alive. So, um... That piece was produced by Studio 360's Daniel Guimet. Thanks to Alexandra Farr, who read from the court transcript.
still ahead? The dystopian gospel pop punk band Algiers joins us for a live performance. It's a social music, and it's not just an expression of solidarity. We're very much among those people. That's up next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Studio 360. Today's show is all about music. So here are two musical genres that seem like they're on opposite sides of the musical spectrum. Punk rock, gospel. But you know how in food somebody serves you two ingredients that make no sense at all, but then you eat them, the sushi pizza, the pitted date and peanut butter, and it, whoa, what a perfect combination. Well, that's what the band Algiers does with gospel and punk. Three of the founding members grew up together outside Atlanta, and as kids, they became fans of hip-hop and punk bands and the politics that some of those bands embodied. Protest music is hard because, like any kind of protest art, it can be simplistic and didactic. But Algiers' lyrics don't come across to me as sloganeering. These guys have, I don't know how many graduate degrees among them in art history and literature and political science. And that smartness does show up in their songs, which you can now hear for yourself because they are here for a live performance. Algiers, welcome to Studio 360. Hey, thanks very much. All of you. All four of you. And we're going to talk, but first, let's hear a song. This is going to be the title track of the album? Yeah, this is, this is Underside of Power. Broken shards all that we are sometimes Scattered around what you try To control of your life It's not a matter of fate It's just a question of time We all fall down It's not a matter of fate It's just a question of time We all fall down I've been stranded And they die on the side of the wall I've been shot just because my heart I lost the times I've been body and soul
That was Algiers playing the underside of power from their new album, also called The Underside of Power. Franklin James Fisher is the lead vocalist, and I saw that he was also the guitarist and the keyboardist and the device master. Well, why uh, is the device master? <laughs> um, will you will you introduce the rest of this band? Yeah, so this is Ryan Mahan, the uh, the main device master, bassist. Uh, you have Lee Tesh over here on the guitar presently, and the man in the box with the drums right now is Matt Tong. You can always keep him in the box. See, that's what you, that's, that's what you do with drummers, is just keep them in the box. You made this album, I guess, wrote it and created it after Brexit, after Brits voted to leave the EU, after maybe or while Americans were electing Donald Trump president. Uh, did, did those events shape the lyrics or sound of what you were doing here? Well, not particularly, because what we do, we're, we're not a, a topically oriented band. What we do is very much we're attacking structures and things that, that have always kind of been running along underneath the culture for quite a long period of time, and these things don't really change. A lot of this record was written while Obama was still in office. Uh-huh. Right, and and certainly uh, young black men were being murdered Absolutely. or killed by police while Barack Obama was president. And that's, that's one of the most yeah. troubling things um, that I think the black community had to face is that you have a, a black man in the most, it was presumably the most powerful office in the land. Well, but the president can only do so much. Exactly. We obviously engage and react to our experiences growing up in the South and the way that we history was um, suppressed. And therefore, we really are very much interested in how all levels of society are sites of political struggle and right. oppression. Do you think of it as... as Protest music is that is that is that the pigeonhole in which it belongs? No, definitely not. It's it's a social music, belonging to various communities and people who who live real lives and have to deal with real issues. And it's not just an expression of solidarity. We're very much among those people. Right. And also, protests can feel quite one-sided. Right. It can feel quite. Like oh, I know empty, what I'm going to hear. An empty call into the into, yes. into the void. I'm in the choir. Preach to me. Right. Yeah. And to, or just a, like an empty call to the void, where actually there's not no, nothing actually being fundamentally changed. So, I think protest is probably not the correct word. Although we would always march and get involved. Right. I think it's much more about intervening in spaces where but, it but, needs to be but done. But talk about that. What what social or political effects can do you expect or wish playing these songs to have? We can start a dialogue just by putting these songs into the pot, into the culture, into the atmosphere. Anybody who may or may not agree with what it is that we say, if they're jarred enough by what they hear, maybe they'll come to one of our shows or they'll write us, and that may lead to some further action. When, when a politician uh, dog whistles and calls on people to, to uh, be proud or be nationalistic, and that manifests itself in real physical palpable violence, I think we, uh, in turn, have to respond accordingly in, in a discursive way. Growing up in Atlanta, I was in the suburbs. It was very alienating. and I heard punk rock and, and, and hip-hop music that was political, and it taught me about the world. Right. And I think, I think in that didactic sense, not to be heavy-handed, but it's, right. it, can be, it can be really powerful. And speaking of social music and protests and all the rest, there's your song Cleveland, uh, which is on this album which is, among other things, about Tamir Rice, the 12-year-old kid uh, that Cleveland police killed in 2014, which I understand you're going to play. Yeah. Will you play it? Absolutely. Oh, 
different colors in the middle of that. They're running Waller County, Texas, before passing and dying. down in Jackson, Mississippi, they don't have to Same evil power since the 63s. They ain't in Homewood, Alabama with the whitest shit. And in Montgomery County, Maryland, for the Ties the noose, the hand that finds you behind and ties the 13 loose. But that hand is gonna fold, the day is coming soon. When we feel it, full of dust and resurrect the truth. That was Algiers playing Cleveland from their new album, The Underside of Power. So when people talk about Algiers combining uh, elements of gospel and and punk, that song certainly uh, one can hear it. It's like if The Clash went down to somewhere in the South for a while or something, right? I mean, is is that conscious? I mean, were those influences like punk new wave and, and gospel music? For us, actually, the, the true original punk rockers, Nina Simone, so when we all decided that we had a shared love for her, that's when we kind of really found our sound. The, the, this album opens with a track that samples this speech by Fred Hampton, who was this Black Panther in Chicago who was killed in a raid by Chicago police and the FBI in 1969. <laughs> Now, you can barely make that speech out. Why did you use that particular incident and guy? It was to emphasize, number one, to emphasize the, the, the political nature of the Black Panthers 
how they were actually uh, manifesting a internationalist Marxist discourse beyond and above civil rights. So that's number one. So it's something that goes beyond civil rights. Fifteen years, before, twenty years before you were born. <laughs> exactly. Something. But growing up in the South, we, you know, in terms of politics, like real proper left wing politics, there weren't the Democratic Party never represented that for us. So we looked to the Panthers, and that was the that was the one one group that actually represented a, a, an alternative mm-hmm. politics. And you being a white Southerner, appropriating that is that is that problematic? It can be problematic, but if you grow up in the South, you have to you have to make a choice. You have to make a choice wh- whether you're going to serve systems of oppression or at least help attack them and, right. and, and address them in some ways. But even Fred Hampton himself was working with Southern whites, and he was going beyond just identity politics. It was again, it was a class based Marxist internationalist ideology right. that they were working with, and. It's not problematic you talking about these things if for any other reason our group being what it is and in solidarity with me and where I'm coming from and something that yeah. you're obviously conscious of, but it's yeah. important. To and put you're that the boss, there. right, Frankie? So it's fine. <laughs> 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 Will you uh, play us out uh, with another song from this uh, new album? Sure. What's this? This is Death March. It's, and it's as cheerful as it is. <laughs> <laughs> States of America this summer. And that's it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our executive producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is Louis Mitchell. Our producers are Daniel Guimet, Sam Kim, Skylar Swenson, Tommy Bazzari, Zoe Saunders. And our intern is Claude Gillette. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Thanks for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, 
remember those great Blondie songs from 35, 40 years ago? Well, actually, that is from a brand new Blondie album, New Wave, that stays new. Debbie Harry and Chris Stein of Blondie, next time in Studio 360.